Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Point of Everything in 2019. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and I hope you had a good New Year's, whether it was yesterday, whether it was last week, last month, whenever you're, you're listening to the podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Special episode to kickstart 2019. Ruth Medjber has been on the show before, all the way back. TPOE 28, two years ago. That was around the time that she had another exhibition called Women of Note, which was a really, really great show. And she was back at the end of November, start of December, with a show called Ruthless, a decade of live music photography. Took place at the Fumbly Exchange. Hopefully you got along and got to see some of the amazing shots that Ruth has gotten in her past 16, 17 years of shooting, even though a decade of live music photography, as she explains in the chat to follow, is just the last decade of her uh, of her career. So there were shots of Metallica, LCD Sound System, Jay-Z, Grace Jones, Leonard Cohen, Dua Lipa. An amazing photo of Dua Lipa, by the way, that I was uh, close to buying, but I went for a, a Connor O'Brien picture instead because, uh, well, how can I pass up a villager shot? And then there was other Irish acts as well, like La Galaxy, All Twins, uh, Lisa Hannigan, and lots, lots more. Uh, Ruth is really, really great. She got to go out on the road, on the European road, with Arcade Fire as well. So she was there for like a month or something around Europe, taking loads of shots. And there was some really, really great uh, photographs from the tour at the exhibition as well. There was the wall of Arcade Fire, which was just amazing. And a really, really great picture of Regine as well. So two years ago, when Ruth was last on the podcast, Brido Nunnaman, another photographer who you might have heard on the show before, uh, chatted to her. So I thought it would be cool to recreate the moment and kind of see where Ruth is at this stage of her career. Photographer on photographer action, you know. So this is that chat. Thanks a lot to everybody who listened to The Point of Everything in 2018. Really, really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll have a similarly great 2019, both on the podcast, in music, Thanks to Breed for doing the interview. Thanks to Ruth for taking the time out. I think, oh yeah, it was in the Fumbly Exchange. There might be a little bit of background noise going on as well. Uh, So just so you know, to keep your ears peeled or not peeled, I suppose, for that. So on with the uh, first podcast of 2019. Okay, so I'm here with Ruth Medjber in the Fumbly Exchange in Dame Lane in Dublin. We're in her exhibition, A Decade of Live Music Photography. Can you actually believe it? (laughs) Yes, I can believe it because I went um, over the course of many, many weeks and I trawled through my millions of photographs. So I can 100% believe that it's a decade of photographs here right now. Yeah. Was that a bit of a task? Because I... I had to do something like that recently where I had to go back to my first hard drives and look back. And it's actually, I don't do gig photography anymore really, but it was like looking back at the amount of gigs I'd done, I was like, how did I physically do that? Obviously being younger, you've got more energy. It's a bit of a trek. I was just like, oh God, half these are really crap. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a reason that I'm only showing it the last decade. I've been, I've been doing this for like 16, 17 years, but I am purposely not showing work that that's old, that that is like so old and so terrible. But yeah, going through the hard drives, I'm messy as a person. Like I'm disorganized, I suppose, when it comes to hard drives. I'm one of those people that has so many folders called stuff 
stuff two, stuff three. That doesn't help when you're trying to produce a show on this size. So, like, there's 72 gigs represented on the walls here, which isn't that much if you think about how long, you know, for 10 years. A friend of mine was just like, it's not even a gig a month. I was like, just stop, like. 72 gigs, and then the whole other wall is the Arcade Firewall, and that has hundreds of photographs. I kind of went back over the 10 years and tried to aim for what I remembered to be the best images from the gigs. But in doing so, I kind of rediscovered folders that I'd somewhat neglected before. So like The Cure um, and Pearl Jam and things like that, where I, at the time, I pulled maybe five or six images from each gig and submitted them to whatever paper I was working for. And then... For this show, I went back over the original files, and it turns out that my even my editing style has changed in in like six, seven, eight years. So I was actually pulling different shots than I had picked seven years ago. And um, so even for me, I was like, it feels like a new shoot. I was like, oh my god, I never seen that picture before. And then there's stuff like um, I had a folder on my computer that sat there and looked at me for ages, and it was called Kenya. And I was thinking, I've never been to Kenya. Why do I have a folder of photographs called Kenya? A pretty chunky folder as well. And then I looked into it and it was Kanye West and Jay-Z supported by Drake. And I was like, how come I've never done anything with these pictures? So that's on the wall now. Um, So it just kind of goes to show that, um, oh gosh, that you do need to revisit stuff that you've done years ago, but also that I need to be a lot more organized with my pictures. I totally get you. It's probably a very good exercise if there are any photographers and musicians listening to go back over those old files and like revisit them and look at them with your like more experienced eyes and ears. I'm really interested in your Arcade Fire section of the exhibition and hearing a bit more about like the tour and the experience of it, the workload, um, the reality of what is a very glamorous looking job from the outside um, as a photographer I know it's not but I think to other people they're like wow she's so cool she's on tour I can fire she's like yeah no. Let, yeah <laughs> um, glamorous is not the word I'd use it's tough it's really tough so I kind of got that show really really randomly I got an email one afternoon, it was from um, a woman who was claiming to work for Arcade Fire as in an almost like a creative director capacity and she very casually said, we're looking for someone to shoot the Dublin show in a couple of days. I got your information, you were recommended by U2's management and that was a red flag to me because I've never worked with U2. So I was like, this is someone winding me up. I genuinely thought it was just someone having the laugh you know what other photographers are like they think it's gas crack when you write back all eagerly going ah yes I'll do this so I just didn't write back for a while and then I was sitting there watching telly I was like oh you know I'll just have a google of her name and then lo and behold it was you know she came up with all these arcade fire posts I was like oh crap so emailed her back straight away so sorry for the delay um did the Dublin show and it was great you know and I wasn't really that panicked or nervous about it because for me it was just just kind of like a normal night's work and at that time I wasn't like a massive Arcade Fire fan you know I liked the tunes obviously knew who they were but I wasn't like obsessive or anything you know so I wasn't starstruck I could just go in meet the band do the job head home do the photos be grand and that's essentially what I did the next day when they had downloaded all the photos she wrote back to me was like yeah we like these these are great can you come do three nights in Wembley And I did the three nights in Wembley, but the first night, 
first night I actually got had a bit of a wobble because I'd done the gig. I was back in the hotel room and the thing about uh, working a tour on that scale when the band are so professional and kind of so high profile and they have such a signature style and aesthetic is that um, the people around them who curate their social media and who handle their posting and stuff like that are always very particular about the type of imagery and the quality of imagery that they're putting up. And part of my brief is, so they want maybe a handful of photographs, 10 or 15 photographs, as soon as possible after the band come off stage. So the band walk off stage around 11, they definitely want the pictures before midnight. So you're, you're, you're going to like your little nook backstage and you're trying to just reef through the pictures. And then they want you to file the rest of them by the morning. So you're essentially working a night shift. Uh, but the first night in Wembley, I'd filed these 10 or 15 photographs with the creative director and I was getting messages back and she was like, not good enough. I was like, oh my God, what does she mean? And you know what? She was dead right. She was pointing out flaws in my work that I had maybe kind of acknowledged but ignored. And I, it's been so long since I had someone do that to my work in Ireland that I wasn't used to it, but I was very grateful for it. So, you know, she was doing things like, um, you know, oh, your, your focus is slightly off or one of the band members looks a bit weird or you cut them at a bad angle or the screens don't have the right graphics for the split second that they're on or, you know, little tiny little details that I should have been looking at. So I sent back a few more photos and no, they're not good enough. A few more photos. No, they're not good enough. So she was really, really hard on me and I'm so grateful. But because of that, though, I was in a hotel room on my own. I kind of thought that I'd blown my chances. So I was on Skyscanner. I was on the Ryanair website going, I'm going to get kicked off this tour tomorrow. And I had fully just expected to turn up to Wembley the next day and be kind of told, well, we've actually gone with another photographer. So packed up all my bags and stuff. I thought I was going home. I got into the venue and she was... No one said anything. They were like, get on with the job kind of thing. So I was like, oh my God, I've got one more chance. I've got one more chance. Here I go. I did everything in my power to make sure I was nailing it from that moment on. I watched the sound check. I was talking to the guys who were running the video. I was talking to the lighting engineers. I was talking to the, the crew members, um, the, you know, the backline techs, everyone who knew the band so that I could be as prepared as I possibly could to fall in line with how that band operated. Um, I'd watch the sound check and make notes to see, because they're, they're a band who do a lot of new content each night. They don't do the same set list night after night, which means the video screens change, the lighting changes, the positions of the band changes. It's an immensely difficult tour as well, because it's, it's, it's technically, they call it in the round, which is a 360-degree stage, which means the crowd are all around you. There's no way on and off the stage without going through the crowd. And also, the stage feckin' rotates as well. So not only are you battling out with the crowd to get the shot, but then as soon as you line up to take it, the band move. So it's, it's just so hard. But each after those three nights then in Wembley, they liked my pictures and I kind of reached out to them with a thank you email after London. I was like, I really enjoyed my experience, la la la. If you need me again, let me know. And she wrote back going, yeah, we're going to Europe. Come on with us, the space in the tour bus. It's like, score, like, it's so hard though. It's immensely hard. So at that point, you basically had to drop everything? Maybe 
send some emails and cancel some jobs? I did. I could kind of rearrange most things. One thing I was really gutted about was that um, I was about to do a commission for Cara magazine to do portraits and it was going to be a cover spread and that's a magazine I'd always wanted to work for and it was a really good feature. It was people I really respected, I was looking forward to it and I couldn't reschedule one of the people so that I, I lost the whole, the whole shoot, the whole issue and I was raging about that. One of the things, though, I could not reschedule was a mate's wedding. I was the photographer. So I actually came back from the Arcade Fire tour and shot their wedding and then went back out again. I had to be done. Like, if you make a commitment to someone for their wedding day, you're not going to cancel. And bless them, I turned up on their wedding day and their friends were like, oh, my God, you're here. We didn't think you'd actually make it. We weren't sure what was going on. It's like, of course I'm going to be here. And if not, of course I would have told you at least. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, that felt really surreal, you know, going from tour to the wedding and then back again. I'm trying to keep myself a little more um, flexible next year in terms of bookings so that if a tour comes along that I want to jump on, it'll be easier for me to, to hop on it. And I think, I think most people are pretty understandable when they, you know, when I was like, I'm going on tour with Arcade Fire. I'm sorry, Cara Magazine, but this is what's happening. They were like, <laughs> yeah, obviously, go for it. That's cool. So I, people are quite, you know, when I got, when I got the AF tour, like, Ireland were so kind of proud. Do you know what I mean? I did a little Instagram post where I was like, oh, light a candle for me, Ireland. And the amount of messages that were coming through. And then whenever anyone, or whenever Arcade Fire put up a post and tagged me as their photographer, the first whole, like, hundreds of comments were all from Irish people going, go on, the Irish, yeah! (laughs) It's like, oh, this feels deadly, like. That's amazing. Just had the support of like people as well. How many dates did you do then in Europe? I did two stints with them. I did Ireland, London, and then I went over and I did, I think maybe like six or seven dates in the next one. But like there's days off in between. So it's, it's not like a, a full on heavy going tour, tour, tour. Like it was quite nicely spaced out. But I got to see some pretty cool places, you know. I, I got a day off in Budapest. And so I got to kind of wander around and see the city and stay in a really lovely hotel. And, you know, like, and all the crew were on a day off as well. And, you know, you're making friends and they're, they're so lovely and welcoming. Really nice, decent people. And Arcade Fire's crew has been with them for like some of their crew was there for 15 years with them and I think once you know that about a crew member you know that the band are sound and decent you know you're not going to stick with someone who's an arsehole to work with like for that long so yeah it was a really good indicator to me that like this is a, this is a good place to be right now that's incredible I was like initially when you were talking at the start there I was thinking oh it must be amazing to shoot the same set or the same, you know, band repeatedly night after night mm. and have the opportunity to get better shots and to anticipate what's going to happen. But like you said, they changed their set and they changed things up. So you were kept on your toes the whole time as well. But still, I suppose you were able to kind of pick up shots you might have lost the night before, yeah. things like that. Yeah, massively. I mean, there is a core set list that they follow. So there'll be the same songs and key moments where the band will do certain things just from a technical or logistical 
point of view that they need to do their thing. So there's a B stage that the Regine and Wynne go out to. So they battle through the crowd and they go dancing halfway through it. And, you know, sometimes uh, Will would would jump off into the crowd during certain songs as well. So you, you'd learn to anticipate that. And yeah, if I maybe shot it on a super wide angle the night before, I'd try it with something closer the next night. But as well, because I began to, began to kind of know their songs and their lyrics, because in the hotel afterwards, like I, I was, my research went as far as reading the lyrics of every song that I'd just heard or that I knew was going to be on the set the next night. So I was listening to the tunes so I could anticipate, you know, the changes and, you know, the, the strobes and everything that was going to come up. But when I was reading the lyrics, I, you know, obviously began to notice the imagery of reflections, refractions, prisms. They, they sing and dance, or they sing about all of that kind of stuff. You know, I was thinking, I can do a lot with that. I'm a photographer, let's work this in. So I picked up some glass prisms, like really old school things that photographers used to use in like the 1800s, like proper, just bringing it back to what photography always was. So I'd be there in the pit in front of the band after I knew I got the standard press shots that the that the internet or the local press would need that night I started to get like more and more creative and you can you can begin to get quicker in how you shoot the band as well you know two hours is quite a long time to be for them to be on stage so you can you have time to get a little bit creative so I started like um putting these prisms in front of my lens and it would throw rainbows and all sorts of glares and flares into the barrel of the lens. So I got all these really weird, vivid effects that I think capture the, the, the sound of the band in, in the photograph. And for me, that's, that's job done. If I, if I can present a fan with an image that to them they hear the music almost when seeing it I'm like yeah okay I've, I've done them justice so I was kind of happy when I when I stumbled across that and I think the band were happy as well and hopefully I think the fans were happy with how I captured the tour. I think anyone that's seen Arcade Fire live will have noticed and been consumed by uh, Regina's or Regine's enthusiasm and positivity and she just radiates like that's the only way I can describe it and I think there's a photo I picked out the Greystones print because I'm a mad Greystones fan but it was a toss-up between that and the amazing shot you got with her like sequin top and the prism effect and I think it just really like it does describe in an image her positivity her and the music and everything and that moment it's just so electric one thing I noticed as well was that uh, with Arcade Fire Prints, uh, 100% of the profits are going to direct provision. Um, can I just talk a little bit about that and why you decided to do that? All of the Arcade Fire Prints, um, all the profits will be um, donated to people living in direct provision. And you know what, that's, that's just a response to how the band's charitable kind of processes are and their own charitable givings. Because when I was away with them, you know, it sounds so cringy, but I'm inspired by what they do and, and how they speak and, and how how charitable they are. They donate so much to Haiti. They do play loads of fundraising gigs. Um, but as well, each night, like, Wynn is so well-spoken. And, yeah, he is just inspiring that each night he'd always make a little speech during kind of at some point of the night. And sometimes he'd talk about, like, um, emotional issues you know when we were away Anthony Bourdain died so he did a, he did a little speech about that and set me off and I was bawling in the pit but one of the things he'd always kind of mention was um, immigration 
and just how it benefits culture and art and community and you know it was always very he'd always tailor it to whatever city we were in at the time but you know it kind of resonated with me because you know I'm I'm mixed race my dad came here came to Ireland from Algeria so I'm a child of immigration and, and you know I'm proud of that and I'm honoured you know I'm just really delighted that dad did make that move and that Ireland was somewhat accepting of him I've never heard of a band be so open and encouraging of that not many Irish musicians would ever consider saying something like that on stage I'd never heard anything like that so that kind of hit home with me I was when when they when they do things like that Arcade Fire and when they were speaking like that so openly and encouraging I just I kind of broke down a few times I was um, just really really delighted to be involved with them so it was really just because of their own like charitable ethos I was saying to myself I was like you know what I should be doing something like that at home and you know the state of our direct provision centres that it is just shocking how little money that those people have to live on and then they don't have the luxury like we do of disposable income they don't have the means to to do any of the things that we take for granted like going to exhibitions or going to gigs and all the things that I enjoy so I thought how can I help and it's only a little thing that I can do but yeah all of the profits from the arcade fire sales will go to will go to those people who need it kind of more than I do right now. I'm interested in talking to you a little bit about uh, your kind of creative process and working as a sometimes an isolated creative. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about being in that hotel room and the creative director of Arcade Fire saying, oh, you need to push this, like you need to push your, your photographs, you need to get this. And you had a massive... I suppose experience of like self doubt, like which is meltdown, meltdown. <laughs> so I think it's something that a lot of creatives experience, and I think it's important that we do talk about it a little bit more. And like I know in my experience, you know, you can have a meltdown and then you'll be fine an hour later. You might mm. question your whole career, everything you're like doing. Do you put things in place to counteract this, or what do you do to? I think, like, particularly that gig, I just, I had a, a bit of a wobbly. And I think we're all, who, people who work in the creative industries, who are freelance, who are self-employed, we all have moments of self-doubt um, and, you know, what they call imposter syndrome, where it's just like, I'm not good at this, I don't know why I'm doing this. And I suffer from it an awful lot. Like, we're sitting here in the middle of my exhibition in a gallery and, you know, I'm doing it and I'm having a show but I still don't think I'm good enough to do this. You know, I'm, I'm, you're interviewing me, and I'm like, why does she want to talk to me? I have those moments like anyone else. Um, I don't know whether it's a real Irish thing that we can't really take um, compliments, but when we really probably should, and we should acknowledge how good we are sometimes, or we should be a little bit more confident. I try not to let it affect me and try to keep pushing through, but I think, yeah, recognising that it comes in waves um, and to maybe not quit when you feel like quitting but instead take a break or change your workflow or change your subject before I decided to launch this exhibition I am very nearly quit photography completely I wanted to take it back as um, a hobby rather than to continue it as a career and god I even I was like what other things can I do because I've never done anything else in my life except for photography and it's become extremely intertwined with my identity like all of my friends know exactly what I do for a living but you know there's people who I who are my good friends who work in offices and banks (laughs) that I'm like I don't actually know what you do and I'd love that I'd love the kind of not so much the anonymity of it but I'd love the flexibility of 
changing careers and it not being the, the, the be all and end all for my life. But I am trying to just be a little bit more self-aware um, in my emotional state and to reach out to other freelancers maybe when I'm having a little bit of a low moment or some doubts. Um, and that's been really helpful that you can talk to people who are maybe not like exactly freelance music photographers, but freelance journalists or concert promoters or things like that where... I'm like, okay, they're, they're doing similar things, similar workflows, and they're also working at home on their own, so maybe I'll reach out to them. And, you know, social media has become a great kind of tool for that. It's been a great ally and a bit of a help. Like, I talk about my Insta army, and it's, it, it does feel like I've got this little gathering of core mates that I've never really met in real life, but they're very supportive and they're very encouraging. And they'll also be the first people to tell you, you know, that's not a great shot. And I'll be like, oh God, you're right. <laughs> so it's not just all about ego stroking. They're very honest, but they do pick you up a bit when you're, um, when you're feeling a bit low. I'm very grateful for that, but I don't know. I don't have the answers. I wish I was, I wish I could like write a book on how to be a freelancer taking it each day as it comes they don't teach you this stuff in college or school I really don't think anyone does have the answers though I think being freelance is just an individual experience everyone takes it in in their own way but you're dead right like you do have to put yourself out there you do have to put yourself in front of people and say oh actually I need a bit of help or can you advise me I just I think that's how you'll get more work done and you'll you know and you won't melt down. And exactly. <laughs> Zero melters, please. Um, and as much as social media can be a hindrance, and I know you've talked a little bit about that on your Instagram, about how, and I find it as well, that it can be almost paralyzing. Um, and you can get into, like, comparing yourself to other photographers or other creatives. Um, but then there's that all the other side of like that, that it is a massive support system and you can use it to your um, advantage. Yeah, Instagram is a bit of a double-edged sword, really. On one hand, it's very supportive and it's very encouraging and it's a nice place to kind of hang out and to connect with people on a one-on-one basis. I'm forever in my messages just chatting away to people. Went away on my own this year and took a little holiday just to, for some me time. And it didn't feel like I was on my own because I was chatting away to Instagram the whole time. However, I am very selective in my social media use. I use it, I use it for my own purposes only, like, and I don't let it control me. Um, I became very negatively affected by social media because I was one of those people that would wake up and the first thing I would do was scroll and scroll and scroll. And I have this, I'm, you know, that fear of missing out. So I'd scroll to the end of the page where I'd seen everything from yesterday. Um, and it was, it was getting into my brain so much that I was waking up at 2 a.m. and doing it and 4 a.m. and doing it and 6 a.m. and doing it. I was constantly refreshing the feed and it was becoming dangerous and it was becoming, I just wasn't being very productive in my real life because I was scrolling so much. And the really bad part of that is that I was following all these amazing photographers um, who were doing this incredible work and who were on tours with bands that I wanted to be on tour with or who were doing photo shoots and fashion shoots with people that I wanted to work with. So, like, how I got around that was I called a load of people. I only, photo- I only follow a handful of people now. They don't make me feel as guilty or as jealous or as just lacking confidence as maybe the other people do. So I don't compare myself as much anymore to other people. So I have a question that all the photographers want to know. What's your gear like? What do you take to gigs? What don't you take? 
give us some advice. So if I'm doing a big gig like Electric Picnic or Glastonbury or the Arcade Fire Tour, everything I own comes with me. As much as I can fit and carry on my back, I will take it with me. However, I have got a small kit that will come to come on most gigs with me. Um, I'm a Nikon shooter, and I know a lot of people are just cringing hearing that now, but I do. I've always shot on Nikon um, because it was the first SLR that I ever owned, and the glass is, um, is just... Uh, you know you can swap it between all bodies so I started shooting on a bandy little D70 which is an entry-level Nikon um it's kind of like you know your D3300s now definitely nothing professional about that but the thing about just shooting is that once you know the camera inside and out it doesn't really matter what grade it is so I shot my very first hot press cover on the D70 um, and on a kit lens like that wasn't expensive equipment but if you know how to use it you can use it really well so people always ask me for advice when they, they want to level up their photography skills and they're like oh I'm thinking of buying a new camera because I want to reach the next level and I'm like is the camera you have in your hand still clicking? They're like, yeah, yeah, it works fine. I'm like, then don't upgrade that camera. If your camera works fine, use it and use it till it dies a death in your hand. And that's what I do. My camera at the moment is a Nikon D4S um, that's about four years old and all of the rubber on it has disintegrated and fallen off. It's the most ridiculous looking thing ever. But because it's been in my hand every single day, your hands get sweaty, the gigs get messy, like the rubber just falls off. Um, But it's still taking pictures pictures so I'm still using it I'm not one of those people who upgrades every time a new camera comes out it's just not practical it's not economical and it's stupid business practice so I use my bodies until they die but I tell everyone to do the exact same thing instead of trying to like level up your gear just level up your knowledge of the bloody thing I always tell people RTFM do you know what RTFM stands for? Read the F and manual. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, Ruth is showing me up in the yeah. interview. <laughs> My lack of photography knowledge. No, okay. <laughs> RTFM breach. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Basic, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't and you can download the manual onto your phone now and read it and I'm such a nerd I actually do read my manuals but once you know how to use the camera as well as you know how to use your phone it has to be intuitive you have to be able to change your settings like as soon as you possibly can with your eyes closed you need to know your menus inside and out that's what's going to help you level up your skills not a new bloody camera then as far as lenses go if you look at my shots you'll notice instantly that there's different lenses used first thing I should talk about is my bag actually because it was the best purchase I've ever gotten it's a Billingham bag, which they, they are about 250 euro, but I've had it for about seven years and it hasn't fallen apart and it's fantastic. Like, So if you're going to invest in anything, invest in a good bag. Especially gig photography. If you're in pubs, venues, you're going to get stuff spilt on you. Yeah. You're going to want a good bag to protect that gear. Absolutely. like So in that Billingham, there is a flash and three lenses and then the body is around my neck and um, the... Flash is just a standard whatever Nikon flash. Nobody really cares. All a flash does is bend some light. Grand. Let's not get too complicated. Then lenses, I have um, the 24-70 to 2.8, which is a, a go-to lens for all photographers. It's great for portraits. It's grand for gigs. Blah, 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 blah. Not a bother there. Then I have an 80 to 200 Nikon, right? And most people listen to this and go, surely she means 70 to 200. What a little idiot girl. No, 
an 80 to 200 is what I have. It's ridiculously old. I bought it when I was 18, and even then it wasn't a new model. It was super old, but it works, and the bokeh on it is amazing, so I'm keeping it. I'm not upgrading. And then I have a 15 millimeter fisheye Sigma, which is a 2.8, and that's how I get those really big wide shots of stages and things like that. Then also knocking around there at the odd time is a 50 millimeter 1.4 that I got for my 16th birthday that I still use. So that's half my life ago. But yeah, and then I have like toy cameras. You know, like I spend, my gear is my gear. It's a workhorse, you know. Everyone's probably listening to this going, of course she takes deadly pictures. Her camera costs seven grand. Yeah, fine, like. And people say to me like, oh, it costs more than your car. Um, I'm not a professional driver. I'm a professional photographer. This is something I use every day. So yeah, I'm going to invest in a good camera. But I also love spending money on toy cameras. They're nothing stupid, but like buying you know all the different size instax because they're so much fun at the end of the day yeah i'm a professional photographer but i'm also like a hobby photographer i'm a you know i love doing it in my spare time as well and that's when the analog stuff gets brought out so i still shoot 35 mil i shoot 120 mil on um holgas and dianas um uh, it's just gas it really is so much fun to do that and then i'd have like a little dark room set up in my bathroom that i can process and develop and print so I'm kind of nerdy but really at the end of the day like my gear is and I'm not one of those photographers who has two bodies do you ever see them in the pit and they've got two massive camera bodies strapped on them and giant lenses and like oh my god the ego on you like you don't I don't need that I think it's too it's too heavy you know I'm five foot two I'm not massive cameras aren't really designed for me they're designed for men who are six foot two and are broader across the shoulders so it's so hard when you're a woman you know and people are like oh would you not get like a a cross body strap I'm like no I've got boobs that doesn't work you know what I mean so (laughs) I try and keep it light and I try and just minimize what I'm carrying around with me so no I don't have two bodies I'll have a backup in my bag if I'm on a big gig but no so that's the gear. <laughs> it's just amazing what, what you've just said, because I think it's really important for photographers and budding photographers, people who are thinking, oh, maybe this is something that I could do. Just to know that, like, do it on your own terms. Mm-hmm. Don't look at what other people are doing and, like, don't let them shoot you down. Like, you know, you don't need the equipment that they have. You need the equipment that, like, suits you. And sometimes I think people get caught up in like the visual aspect of it, of like looking the part. And that's been told to me years ago, I think, when I was starting out, that it was advised that, uh, oh, you need to look a certain way to make sure you come in with your camera and your flash and, you know, make sure you look a certain way. And I was like, what? I was like, okay, is this something I'm supposed to do? But that's why I'm like particularly happy that, that you said this. And it is really inspiring sitting here in this gallery, like looking at all your work, looking at like all the hard work and the dedication that you've given to music photography. I know there's so many musicians who are like indebted to you for like those photographs and like having such high quality imagery is just like so invaluable, I think, to musicians. So well done. (laughs) I think last time we talked was about two years ago for this podcast and it was just around the time of Women of Note, which was another like amazing exhibition. So I'm interested to see what's next for Ruthless Imagery. (laughs) You did mention that you're going to take a little break, a little holiday, which I think is much deserved. 
yeah, I'm definitely taking a holiday after this. I can't remember the last day off I had. And that's just the freelance way. You know, you just take the work when it comes and you keep going and you keep going. But I do also have to mind my own head. So I'm taking a little bit of time out after this. The start of the next year, I'm doing a portrait project um, for an NGO, which I'm really looking forward to because it's a total change of pace. Um, so that'll be another exhibition. And then we kick back straight off into festival season. So God, yeah, I need a little holiday first. <laughs> <laughs>